Today's passage comes from Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today. Uh, I thank you for all that you have done. And, and God, we just come here before you just to give you all the praise and all the glory. God, I pray that as we hear this word that you would penetrate our hearts and that, Lord, we are here just to simply remember all that you have done in our lives. So, God, we thank you and we love you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, in 1921, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he was on a family vacation. Um, and at that time, he was the senator of New York. He was heading uh, to become... Uh, very clearly to a lot of people, the president of the United States one day. And so he went on this vacation, he was having a good time, but all of a sudden uh, he uh, became very sick. Uh, they thought it was just a cold at first, um, but as time went on, it, it just got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And it was to the point where it ended up paralyzing him from the waist down. At that moment, he thought that his life was over. At that moment, his family thought that his political career was over. They told him that he should just come back home, that he should step out of the public realm. They said that his sickness was something new, that they didn't know exactly what was going on, and, and that what he needed now more than anything was to rest. And you see, it, it would make sense for him to rest. Because for FDR, he was in constant pain. He had bladder and bowel dysfunction. He had paralysis that was permanent in his legs, and yet at times it would come up, and it would temporarily paralyze his entire body. There would be times when he would be speaking, and, and paralysis would strike his face, and he would not be able to speak. But for him, he still decided to run. For him, he still decided to become president. And you see, historians, they look back on that time, on his presidency, and they say that for him, he was the exact right president 
at the exact right time. And they say that if, he, if there was someone else who was in his place, they don't know if America would be where it is today. They look back now and they say that for FDR, he is on the same platform. He is considered one of the three greatest presidents in U.S. history. Now the question is why? Because it would have been so much easier for FDR to have just stepped down. It would have been easier for FDR just to have gone off and, and done something else with his life. You see, for him, when he was about to become president, it was the worst economic time in U.S. history. There was something called the Great Depression that had happened. And during that time, there was 20% unemployment. There was, poverty was at an all-time high, and the people there were so confused. The people there were so hurt and upset. The people there were without hope. And what happened was that FDR came in, and he gave them hope. FDR, he came in, and he gave them direction. Because what he did is that all these other politicians, all these other candidates, they would say one thing, they'd say, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you guys some type of plan, I'm gonna give you guys some type of idea of what to do, but for FDR, he said, no, no, I'm not gonna give you this type of whatever plan, I'm gonna give you an exact idea of what we're gonna do. And so for him, he gave three exact markers and where to go and what to focus on, and his entire presidency was marked by those three things. And he continued on, and he did not waver away from any of that. And so in that confusion, they saw direction. In that confusion, they knew exactly where to go. And in that confusion, they received hope because of it. You see, FDR, he was the right president at the right time. For Paul, he, he wrote the book of Galatians. He wrote it for Christians. And a lot of us, we can be confused by that because it doesn't seem like it would be because it's just talking about the gospel. So it would make sense for Galatians to be a book for non-Christians or to the outside world or to those who don't really attend church. And yet for Paul, he wrote it specifically for Christians, for people who confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if that's the case, why would he spend six chapters talking to Christians about the gospel? And the answer is simple. It's because even for Christians, there is confusion in what we believe. That even for Christians, there is confusion in exactly where we should go. That even for Christians, we don't know exactly which way we should turn. And when there is confusion, there is hopelessness. And so what we see in this passage is three things that Paul does. And it's these three markers that bring clarity to the church. Now let's go through them together. The first thing Paul does is he confronts Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. In verse 1 it says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Why was Paul going to Jerusalem? 
Now, a lot of people, they had thought that it was because Paul wanted to make sure that his gospel was right, that he wasn't exactly sure if it was the correct one or not, and so he wanted to go up to Jerusalem to just make sure that his gospel was the right gospel. And it can sound this way because in verse 2, Paul sounds afraid that he has been running this race in vain. But don't mistake this. Nothing was threatening Paul's faith. Something was threatening his fruitfulness, you see. Paul's message, we've learned about this before, was directly from God. And so we know that every word here is right and it's true. But Paul knew that if Peter, James, and John were not completely on the same page with him, that it would hurt his reputation and that inevitably it would hurt the church. And what would happen if that, what would happen is that if it hurt his reputation, that the converts that he was able to minister to, they would see that and they become disillusioned and that they would end up leaving the church. And so he was afraid because of that. And so he made sure to confront those who needed to be confronted in order to bring unity within the church. Now, this is the first marker, church. The first marker is this. Biblical confrontation is always necessary. What we know from this verse is that when there is disagreement, when there is misunderstanding, when there is confusion, it is biblical and it is good to confront it head on. It says here that Paul went up because of a revelation from Jesus. In other words, Jesus told Paul, you need to go and confront this. And you see, when we read the Bible, we see verse after verse about confrontation. It never says that it's optional. It's always laid out as a necessary step. Look, if something is wrong, if a person is in jeopardy, we have to seek God to give us wisdom and love in order for us to approach them. Almost no one does that naturally. I'd I'd argue that no one does that naturally. Clearing confusion always creates tense feelings, and for us, we desire our personal comfort. And so for a lot of us, We ask the wrong question when we think about confronting or talking to someone. Because for us, 99% of the time, we ask, when should we confront them? Is now the best time? God, maybe is next week the best time? Or maybe I should just wait a few years and and all this will kind of blow over and, and, and it'll be fine. We always focus on the when. We see the right question to ask during biblical confrontation are two things, how and why. How should I confront this person? And why should I confront them? You know, a lot of us, um, we know the phrase like a bull in a china shop, right? And what that means simply is that someone is acting really carelessly or saying careless words and, 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 and the way they move and behave and, and so things break. You see, a bowl, if you put them in a china, if you put it in a china shop, it would break all of the china that's in there. And we don't really know the origin of this, 
uh, idiom, but in 1940, there was this publicity stunt where they actually brought a bull into a china shop to see what would happen. And to be honest, nothing actually happened. The, the bull would stay still and, and there was no china that broke. But what happened is that there was a bystander who was watching and the bull saw that person, ran after, and ended up hurting that person instead. Confrontation is necessary, but it requires the utmost wisdom. Because confrontation is not going to be about whether it hurts you, it's going to be about whether it hurts the other person. The Bible talks about this so many times in the book of Proverbs. It says that rash words are like swords that kill, but a wise tongue is like ointment that heals. In Colossians, Paul says that our speech should be gracious and seasoned with salt. What does that mean? You know, today salt is, is used to bring out flavor in meat. So when you confront someone, if it's not bringing them closer to Christ, then what you are saying is unwise. If your words are not helpful in helping them grow as Christians, then Paul is saying that it is worthless, that you should not be saying those words. That if you are confronting someone and is not helping them grow in Christ, then it is not worth saying at all. So the question becomes, how do I become wise? How do I confront in love? The answer to both of them is prayer. In Proverbs 2.6 it says, For the Lord gives wisdom. He gives it. And we know in 1 Kings that Solomon, he asks for wisdom and God gives it to him. A lot of us, I know, I've talked to so many of you that you want to know what to do. You want to make the right decisions, that there are things that are coming up in your life that you are not sure whether it's the best thing to do. It's not about making the right decision or, or making the good decision. It's about making what's the better decision. Because there's so many do doors that seem so good. So what, which, the, which is the best one for me to go through? And yet, how many of us have actually fallen on our knees and cried out to God that he would give us wisdom. How do you become wise? It's going to be through prayer. How do you confront and love? Church, it's going to be through prayer. Confrontation is one of the most delicate things that you can do because you are speaking directly to someone's heart. And yet, instead of coming in with a scalpel, we come in with a chainsaw, not even thinking about what we're saying, not even understanding the context of where they're coming from, not even praying for our hearts to be ready. And it's only after what happens, after all of that stuff, that we try to come in and, and patch things up again. This means that if there's someone that you need to confront, pray for them first. One way that I know I'm not ready to speak to someone, 
when someone has made a mistake or when someone is going in the right, wrong direction or someone has really wronged me or, or if I need to really confront this person because they're in sin and, and I really do need to talk to them. One way that I know that I'm not ready is that when I pray for them and it's difficult, nay, impo almost impossible for me to pray for their benefit. When I pray for them, I, and if I'm not able to say, God, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would help them to grow. I pray that you would raise them as a leader. I pray that you would raise this person as a man of God, as a woman of God. I pray for this. If that becomes too difficult for me to pray, how in the world am I going to speak to them in love when I confront them? Before you confront someone, church, test yourself. And the way that you test yourself is through prayer. Now, why do we confront? One of the main reasons I have seen confrontation go badly is because the confronter completely twists the why of confrontation. Confusion and misunderstanding can become intensely personal. And many times we confront in order to feel better about ourselves. But the Bible, it never says that. Confrontation is never about one person's benefit. It's always about bringing unity to the church. For Paul, he knew that his gospel was the right gospel. That was never the question. The only thing he feared was a divided church because he knew that fighting Christians were the worst witness to an unbelieving world. Look, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people become so disillusioned with God because the church was such a terrible representation of him. And look, I, I know that sounds unfair to a lot of us because look, we're broken too. Christians, we're, we're, we're hurt people too. And what we know better than anyone is that the church is, is not this country club. The church is a, a hospital. It's for sick people. But church, the outside world can't help but equate the local church with God. They become almost interchangeable. And it's why so many people hate God because they hate the church. They see pastors having affairs. They see pastors being abusive. They see pastors riding private jets. They see gossip and hurtful words rampant in the congregation. So no wonder they're driven away. So it becomes the duty and the privilege of a Christian to confront these problems. And it becomes our duty and our privilege to confront them head on so that we can have a unified church. Paul, he confronts the apostles and we see that they are all unified under one gospel. Verse 3 says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. You see, something beautiful happened where they were all under one gospel. They all believed the same thing because the others, they knew that circumcision didn't mean salvation. 
And so for Titus, he didn't need to do anything. They knew that it was through his faith that he was saved. And after this conversation, Paul, he tells us the second thing that he does. In verse 10, it says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Church, the second marker is this, that Christians are called to care for the poor. There are four things that Paul says that are important when he talks about those in need. First is that the apostles were of one mind about this. Second is that this was considered important enough to talk right alongside the purity of the gospel. Third is that Paul was not only willing, he was eager to help the poor. And fourth, that this priority is not from their minds, but it is from Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus, he gave half of his possessions to the poor. And Jesus says, look, today salvation has come to this house. The evidence of salvation, church, is practical financial compassion to the poor. Giving to those in need is a blessing, not a burden. And if it's a struggle for you to give, the Bible says the cure to an apathetic heart is to remember what God has done in your life. That's it. That's, that's kind of all it says. But that's all that you need, really. Because church, if you are a Christian, all you need to do is remember what God has done in your life. Remember that you are forgiven. Remember that you are loved. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he gave it all to be poor, so that you could be rich. For us, our church, our mission, our vision is really simple, but it's very clear. We will give to those in need. For us, we are all in on foreign missions. For us, we have missionaries that our life groups support. For us, that's all that we desire to do because we believe in this so much that we are called to care for the poor. And if you are able to go to a mission trip, I really want you to try and go because you're going to see that us evangelizing, us going out on the street, yeah, that's a part of it. But for a majority of our time, what we're doing is we're building houses Majority of our time, we're painting, we're giving back, we're clothing, we're giving food, we're doing all of these things that the Bible tells us to do. And I know that when I say we should give, that we should serve, that we need to be able to do these things, it almost seems opposite of what we've been saying for a long time. Because I know we've been saying that the gospel is that you are not saved by your works. 
And this past couple of weeks, we've been saying, look, you are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your works. And now it's almost like we're saying, you're not working enough. You're not working enough. You're not working enough. Church, we are not saved through our works. However, our works are the fruit of our salvation. It's why in Galatians it can say you are saved by faith alone, and yet in the book of James it can say faith without works is dead. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Those two things go together. You are not saved by your works. But once you are saved, how you know you are saved is going to be through your works. Those two things go together. You are not saved through your works, but your works will be the fruit of your faith. And one of those fruits will be to help those in need. And lastly, Paul, he talks about the true gospel. Verse 4 says this, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul here, he emphasizes one word. He says freedom. Freedom. This is the third marker. Faith in the true gospel gives you freedom. When you are saved, you are saved completely through grace. There was nothing that you could ever do to have eternal life, brothers and sisters. But Jesus Christ, he came to earth, and it was through his work that we are saved. And because of that, we have freedom. This world is going to tell you so many different things. And this world is going to tell you that you are determined, that your worth is from the things that you can do. Even here, even, even when we talk to each other, one of the first things that we ask is, what do you do? For us, so much of our value is placed on our works. But you see, church, he loves you for who you are. And there's no strings attached to that. He valued you so much that he sent his son to die for you. So when he looks at you, you are completely free. And the death that has covered your life is now completely gone. This is the freedom you have. You are not defined by what you do or what you have done. You are his and he is yours. In John 1.12, it says that you are his child and that he is your father and that there is complete freedom within that. And church, what freedom gives you is a hope everlasting. And I've been able to talk with a lot of you guys, and I know that 2020 hasn't been the greatest year, and it's only been a month and a half. <laughs> and I know that we had certain expectations for how this year was going to go, that this year was going to be different, that this was the start of a new decade, that this was going to be the start of, of something new, that God was going to do something different. And I know for a lot of us, it didn't turn out that way. In fact, it's been one of the worst years. 
I said again and again that this is going to be the year of breakthrough. That this is the year of breakthrough for our church and for you. And yet what I've realized, what I've seen is that it doesn't seem like God is breaking through to you. It just seems like God is, is breaking us. In the book of Romans, we have Paul and he's, he's going through so much. And the book, and in this book, the church is going through so much. And for him, he's looking at this church and, and he says something so simple. He says, look, church, I'm happy. I'm happy. Because I know that even in this affliction, this affliction is good. This pain is good. This trial is good. Because affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character is what's going to produce hope. And the hope that I'm going to have, the hope that I have, it doesn't disappoint. Church, there's going to be a lot of confusion for you. There's going to be a lot of things that come up in your life. There's going to be a lot of things that you're unsure about where to go and what to do. And when hardships come, you are going to be so confused because it's going to be like a fog that's covering you. But hold on to this truth that your trials it produces hope. That your trials, it produces hope. That your trials, it will produce hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. That's what your identity is in. That's what we believe. That is what it means to have faith in the true gospel. That your, your identity is not based upon your works. Your identity is not based upon what you can achieve or what you can do. God loves you for you. God loves you for you. You are his child and he is your father. So have hope. Have hope in the good things and have hope in the bad things. Because all of those things will lead to hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.